Good morning again. (laughs) As you saw, if you have the bulletin or if you have the note sheet from this sermon, you see I entitled it, The Pastor Steals a Sermon. That's why I had the little note there. And the reason I put that is because this is the start of a series on the Sermon on the Mount. So I'm stealing a sermon from Jesus, so I think that makes it okay. So this is a new series we're going to do. We're going to study through the Sermon on the Mount. But why would we look at a passage like this? Well, the reason I was drawn to it was thinking about the past year. 2019 was a year of highs and lows for East Shore Baptist Church. We celebrated our 50th anniversary as a church, and there were wonderful ministries that were happening throughout the year. But there was also a lot of staff turnover, and I know there was a lot of hurt and confusion that went along with that. And so as we march into 2020, I believe that the best thing we can do as a church is to focus on the one who unites us, Jesus Christ. And an English pastor named J.C. Ryle, who I enjoy reading, he said this, he said, it is well to be acquainted with all the doctrines and principles of Christianity. It's well, it's good to know about the Christian faith, but it is better to be acquainted with Christ himself. It is far better to be familiar with Jesus himself, to see the king's own face, and to behold his beauty. And so that's what I'd like to do the first half of this year. I want us to see Jesus's face. I want us to spend time in his presence. I want us to focus on him. And what better way to do that than to hear from Jesus himself? So we're going to look at the Sermon on the Mount. It's the longest uninterrupted message from Jesus that we have. We are hearing directly from our Lord and Savior. Maybe you're here and you're not a Christian, and you've been curious, who is this Jesus guy that Christians talk about? What is he like? What did he say or do? Well, after today, you'll know. You'll hear him in his own words. There's no authentic Jesus Twitter account that you can search through to try to figure out what his priorities are. This is what we have. This is how you know who he is and what he cared about. And my hope and prayer is that as we talk about this sermon, this message from Jesus, that you will listen to what he has to say and respond to his invitation. If you do know Jesus, well, I hope this series will help you to see him better, to know and to love him better. So let's pray as we begin. Lord, this morning, we want to see you clearly. Thank you, God, for your word which gives us your truth. I pray that as we look at this sermon, we will have a bigger understanding, a greater appreciation for who you are, so that you truly may be the one to increase in our lives, that our lives become less about ourselves and more and more about you. May what we say here today lead us to begin to understand this amazing sermon. Help us to see you as we study it. Build in us the exceeding righteousness that you desire. And remind us that that righteousness is only possible because of the work of your Son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that I pray. Amen. So this week we're going to start by talking about the Sermon on the Mount as a whole, and then in the coming weeks we'll look at it piece by piece. This is a passage of 111 verses, and nowhere in it is it called the Sermon on the Mount. This was a name that was given to it by the early church father Augustine about 300 years after it happened. 
It's a unified and complete message, but even though it's the longest sermon from Jesus we have, he probably spoke longer than this when he taught. If you want an example of that, you might be familiar with the story where Jesus feeds 5,000 men at one time. And the reason he had to feed this crowd is because they had been coming to him and listening to him teach. The thing is, though, you can read through the Sermon on the Mount in less than 20 minutes. So Jesus probably spoke longer than 20 minutes most times that he talked. So the sermon we're reading is something that was actually preached, but it's also an excellent summary of what Jesus taught, the kinds of things he said when he was teaching and traveling from town to town performing miracles. There's a very similar passage in the Gospel of Luke chapter 6 that's either a condensed version of this sermon or perhaps it was a different message given at a different time. Because remember, Jesus did travel to different cities and towns, and so he could have used the same content in different locations. We find the Sermon on the Mount in the Gospel, or the Good News according to Matthew. This is one of four books that we have in the Bible that tell us about the life and work of Jesus Christ. Very early in that book, an angel appears to a man named Joseph and tells him about his wife Mary, says she shall bring forth or give birth to a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. The book of Matthew begins by pointing out that people need to be saved. They need to be saved from their sin and their rebellion against God. All people disobey God's commands, and what they earn from that is God's judgment and his wrath, eternal death for their sins. But the Gospel of Matthew doesn't end with this need. It ends with Jesus' death and then his resurrection. His death paid the penalty for our sin. His resurrection gives new and eternal life to those who know him. The point is the Gospel of Matthew is a book about how Jesus saves his people from their sin. And so everything in it, including the Sermon on the Mount, is tied to that point. Where does this sermon fit in? Well, it's, it's pretty early in the book. It's chapters 5 through 7. The book begins with an account of Jesus' birth, and then it skips ahead to him being baptized by John the Baptist. He's then tempted by Satan in the wilderness before he returns to a region called Galilee. And there, he begins proclaiming the same message that John the Baptist proclaimed. From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus told the people to repent, to turn away from their sin, because God's kingdom, his reign, and his rule over the earth was coming through Jesus. Through who he was and what he did, God's kingdom was coming. After Jesus starts preaching, he calls some disciples, some followers, to come with him and to learn from him. Then he begins teaching, proclaiming, and healing great crowds and multitudes of people, and more and more people are coming to see him. And it is here that we arrive at chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus sees these crowds, and he decides to deliver this sermon. The first verse tells us that Jesus went up a mountain and sat down. It says, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. Traditionally, Jesus is believed to have given this sermon at a place on a mountain northwest of the city of Capernaum that overlooks the Sea of Galilee. If you look at this picture on the right, that's a church 
called the Church of the Beatitudes in Israel. And so that's traditionally where it's believed Jesus delivered this sermon. And you can see it's kind of up on a hill overlooking the Sea of Galilee. Now, if you look at verse 1, some translations say he went up the mountain, and others say he went up a mountain. It seems to me that the is probably correct because it connects Jesus to the greatest leader in Israel's history, to Moses, because that's the same language used to describe Moses back in the book of Exodus. That's the verse in Exodus 19, verses 2 and 3. It says, there Israel encamped before the mountain while Moses went up to God. And the Lord called to him out of the mountain. In the book of Exodus, Moses climbs up the mountain and God gives him the Ten Commandments. Their commandments, their teachings that govern God's people. They demonstrate his character. They present his desires for those who know him. In Matthew, Jesus goes up the mountain. But he's not receiving commandments from God. No, he gives God's new commandments, and his standard for living. Jesus, he's not contradicting what was said before. He's expanding on it. He's applying it to the lives of his disciples. In short, he is replacing Moses as the most important figure for God's people. And this was promised. God had promised back in the book of Deuteronomy, he said to Moses, I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you, I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. Here in Matthew, another prophet like Moses has arisen, and here in the Sermon on the Mount, he speaks. He is the prophet who is speaking God's word to God's people. Look again at this verse, Matthew 121. It says that you shall bring forth the Son, you shall call his name Jesus. You know what Jesus is in the Hebrew language that the people would have known? It's Yeshua or Joshua. So Joshua was the name of Moses' successor. By having that name, Jesus is, yes, the deliverer, what the name means, but he's also succeeding Moses as the new and greater Moses for his people. This first verse also tells us that when Jesus goes up the mountain, he sat down, because in that day, teachers sat when they taught. So if you notice, there was a slide a couple pictures ago where Jesus was standing, so that's probably not very accurate. This is probably a little more accurate, though, of course, we have no idea what Jesus looked like exactly. I think that's interesting because it's exactly the opposite of our culture. In our culture, when you have something important to say, you stand up, but in ancient Israel, the teacher sat. You know what? Let's try that today. I'm going to sit down and I'll do the rest of the sermon and then you all stand and listen. (laughs) I'm I'm just kidding. You, you, You don't have to do that. But the reason that Matthew brings up this point is because he's emphasizing what Jesus is going to say is important. He sat down to say it. It was something important. We need to listen to it. And in light of that, his disciples were told came to him. They gathered around him. They were anxious to hear what he had to say. There were larger crowds who were still unsure about Jesus, and they probably stood at a distance further down the mountainside. Then in verse 2, in an amazing moment, the Son of God opens his mouth and speaks. He teaches. He teaches his disciples. He teaches the crowd through the Sermon on the Mount. 
And that's kind of an odd phrase, if you have that in translation. He opened his mouth and taught. It's almost redundant. Why would you say you opened your mouth? Can't you just say Jesus taught the people? But that appears to be a reference to a psalm, a passage in the Old Testament. Psalm 78, 1 through 4 says, Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth, there it is, in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but we will tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. So Matthew is inviting his readers to listen to Jesus, because Jesus is revealing the truth of the Old Testament, and what he teaches should not be hidden. In his sermon, he is doing this. He is declaring and exalting the glorious deeds of the Lord, his might, and the wonders that he has done. As I said at the very beginning of this message, that is why we should listen to this sermon, because it is a sermon about God and about Jesus. It reflects his character. It reflects his desire for his people. If you need another reason, at the very end of the Gospel of Matthew, there's a famous passage, Matthew 28, 19, and 20. These are the very last two verses. Jesus says, Therefore go and make disciples of all nations. What does that look like? It means baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Look at that last phrase there. Teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Well, what are these things that Jesus commanded the disciples? Well, certainly the Sermon on the Mount is a good place to start teaching ourselves and others to understand the Sermon on the Mount, that is fulfilling this command from Jesus Christ. There's more to it there. It talks about baptizing, making disciples, but it also includes teaching what Jesus has said. But I want to point out something. If you look at it, it's not teaching them what he had commanded. Jesus could have said, teach them what I commanded you. Pass on what I have said. That's not what he says there, though. He says we are to teach them to obey, to observe everything I have commanded. The Sermon on the Mount is not something for us to just listen to and to understand and appreciate. It's a command from our Lord to be obeyed. Living out this sermon is what Christians are supposed to do. Now, you can listen to a sermon for a lot of reasons. You can listen because you like the preacher's style, the way he delivers. You can listen to a sermon because you like the stories or the illustrations that the speaker uses. You can listen to a sermon to evaluate, is this preacher good or bad at what he does? But the point of a sermon is not any of those things. The point is to declare the truth of God's word in a way that inspires action. A preacher is trying to declare God's word in a way that inspires action. We're supposed to hear the word of God. We're supposed to be changed on the inside by the Word of God. And then we are supposed to live and apply that Word from God every day. Now, I sincerely hope you listen to my sermons, but friends, you cannot ignore Jesus' sermon. 
English pastor Charles Spurgeon has a very simple but profound point referencing verse 2. When Jesus opens his mouth, let us open our ears and hearts. So let's do that. In just a few moments, I'm going to do something a little different than we may have done. I'm going to read the entire Sermon on the Mount. So you know that will probably take 15, less than, definitely less than 20 minutes. What you can do during this time, you can read along if you'd like in the translation you're using. I'll be using the English Standard Version. Or if you just want to sit back and listen, that's fine too. If you want to read along in the Red Bible, you'll find it on page 510 through 512. As you're listening, though, I want you to think about a question. I want you to think about what is the Sermon about? As a whole, what is the Sermon on the Mount about? Because a sermon is not just a collection of phrases. It has a message, a meaning, a point. The whole is greater than the sum of its parts. It's kind of like a mosaic or a tapestry. Each piece, each part is important, but when we see them all together, we truly appreciate its beauty. By reading the whole sermon today, I hope that we will gain an appreciation for the sermon as it was heard when it was first preached, because we are listening to a sermon from Jesus. Now, I can't pretend like I'm directly communicating the way Jesus did. After all, he was speaking in a different language, and I may choose to emphasize certain words or phrases, and maybe when Jesus spoke it, he used different ones. But we can still trust that these are words of Jesus, the Son of God. So listen to the words of the Savior and try to figure out what is the sermon about. Now, if you need a little more direction than that, well, why don't you focus on what Jesus says about righteousness, what he says about right living. What kind of lifestyle is Jesus presenting in this sermon? How are God's people supposed to live? So I'm going to read the message. Now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to try to do it as it would be heard. So I'm not going to reference verse numbers. So if you get lost, just take a moment to listen or try to pick up somewhere further down the road. So Sermon on the Mount, I'm going to start in Matthew 5. Verse 3, this is what Jesus said. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. 
You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent, has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. 
But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and to pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases like the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, For they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but 
lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon, in all his glory, was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy. Do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he ask for a fish, we'll give him a serpent. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, 
And the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell. And great was the fall of it. Chapter 7, verse 28. When Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Well, that's the Sermon on the Mount, if you'll give me a minute. Okay, I know that was a unique thing, and that's not something we do every week, but I wanted to give us the opportunity to hear the whole Sermon on the Mount. So think to yourself, what is your reaction to that? Was listening to it, was that encouraging? Was that comforting? It's a very well-known and familiar passage of Scripture. Perhaps hearing it felt like getting together with an old friend after a long time. On the other hand, maybe you had a different reaction. Maybe you heard that, you're like, that's really overwhelming. That's kind of burdensome. How could anyone live that way? How could anyone expect others to live that way? But let's return to the question I asked you to consider. What is the Sermon on the Mount about? Now, it certainly had a lot to say about how we're supposed to live. It began by talking about our character, but then it moved on to what we do. And what we are to do is to be righteous. Perhaps chapter 5, verse 20 sums it up best. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, some of us have been in the church for a long time, and we might hear a verse like that just on its own. It might make us scratch our heads a little bit. Because we've been in church enough to know that we're not saved from sin by our righteousness, our, our good works. That's not what saves us. Pastor David Platt explained it this way. What Jesus is demanding is not more righteous deeds by human effort, but more righteous hearts by divine grace. In other words, the Sermon on the Mount is not a guide how to get into God's kingdom. It is telling us who men and women who are part of God's kingdom, what they will look like. 
It's about the Christian life. And that's why that chapter 5, verse 20 was such a good summary, because that is what the Christian life is about. Exceeding righteousness, superior, above and beyond righteousness and goodness. The life of a genuine Christian will involve right thinking, right actions, and right living. A character and a heart submitted to God will produce righteous living. When we obey God from the heart, we'll avoid hypocrisy. We'll prioritize our time that we have in His presence here on earth. We can depend on Him in all our relationships, in all our circumstances. And that's kind of what most of chapter 5 and chapter 6 was about. As for chapter 7, Jesus ends all good sermons with a call to action. And he talks about how there's only two ways to live. There's a narrow gate to life that comes from obeying God, a broad way to destruction that comes from living for ourselves and our own interest. This is a clear choice with clear differences. If you know God, you will do this. If you don't know God, you will do that. If we know God, through Jesus Christ, then His Holy Spirit changes us from the inside out. He enables us to live for the Lord. There will be changes. There will be fruit that can be observed in our lives. The work of Christ in our lives will have eternal consequences. This sermon is what God's transforming grace looks like. So yes, the Sermon on the Mount is a steep standard. And by human effort alone, it's impossible to live out. But, but Christians are not alone. They have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. They have God's Holy Spirit living inside them. So living this way, it is possible. Now, in life, we will never do it perfectly, but it is a goal to strive for. It is a lifestyle that we can pursue. The Sermon on the Mount is practical. It is meant to be lived by God's people. The verse we read before the offering was Titus 2, 13 and 14. Here the Apostle Paul says that Christians are to be looking or waiting for that blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Why? Because he is the one who gave himself for us. And he did that that he might redeem us, save us from every lawless deed and purify himself in his own special people who are zealous, passionate for good works. Jesus died so that we would be able to live the Sermon on the Mount. He redeems us from sin and lawlessness. His death purifies his people. It gives them a zeal and a passion for good works and righteous living. What this means is that there is no excuse for a Christian with a sinful lifestyle. And as we just read, Jesus says a sinful lifestyle may be evidence of bad fruit from a bad heart. Those who know Christ consistently live for Him. Now that doesn't mean that they never sin or they never make mistakes, but it does mean that the course of their life is directed toward God, ever-growing, increasing becoming more like him, we will see evidence of a heart changed by God. I really love this summary by the Welsh preacher, Martin Lloyd-Jones. He says, we are not told in the Sermon on the Mount, live like this and you will become a Christian. Rather, we are told, because you are a Christian, live like this. This is how Christians ought to live. 
This is how Christians are meant to live. So if you ever ask yourself, how am I supposed to live? What am I supposed to do? Well, come to these words from Jesus and find your answer. And that's a call to us to respond. If you do not know God, please do not look at this sermon as a checklist. Well, if I just did this, this, and this, then I'd be good. I would be able to get to heaven. The only way is through faith and trust in Jesus Christ because he died on your behalf. Only he can enable you to be restored to your Father and to live this passage. If you do not know him, turn from your sin. Call out to him for a relationship with him. Come to him. You can talk to me about that. You can talk to another Christian, but talk to someone about how you can leave sin behind and know Jesus Christ. On the other hand, if you are a Christian, then you know that just believing in Jesus is not all there is. Because those who have a relationship with Jesus are expected to have a life of exceeding righteousness. It will be hard, yes. But Christian, you have the Holy Spirit within you. You can put this sermon into practice. That's what we're going to talk about in the coming weeks. We're going to talk about how to apply every part of this sermon to our lives. But for now, today, since we looked at the whole thing, decide in your heart, make a commitment to live a life of exceeding righteousness. You cannot do it alone, but only as you depend on the original preacher of this sermon. Ask Jesus to help you apply this sermon as we study it. Prepare your heart and mind to grow and to change in whatever way is necessary to make you more like Jesus. This is how God's people are meant to live. And I have good news. God is making us like this. So may that righteousness he is producing in you lead you to praise him, to worship him every day. So yes, I stole a sermon this morning, but I did it because it comes from Jesus. It is powerful and it should be obeyed. In it, we see Jesus clearly and in it, we see how believers in him are to live. By God's grace and power and his spirit, our lives should be lives of exceeding righteousness because he alone is worthy.